Haymaking Days by John Stuttard. Chapter 20. Ponies, Trout and Elves. Mum's development of Way Ahead was businesslike and successful, but her schemes for the farm were chiefly born out of romanticism. On one such scheme, she persuaded Dad to buy a herd of Shetland ponies, chiefly because she loved to look at them, so small and cute. Dad conceded, and we added them to the ever-growing list of unprofitable projects. The only pony I ever remember selling was a light brown foal bought by Duncan's mum for their daughter Charlotte. Shetlands are rugged little ponies. I loved them, but they were a folly for which we didn't have time. We owned a separate piece of land of some 50 acres in Newchurch and Pendle. The land wasn't very good quality, comprising too much of marshy bogland. The reason we owned the land there escapes me. It was five inconvenient miles from the farm. After Mum lost interest in the ponies, Dad and I transported them to the land in Newchurch, where they were almost forgotten. Dad and I would pay them in frequent visits. On one of our visits, cold Lancashire rain was driving at the Land Rover. We opted to count them from the warmth of inside the cabin. They looked miserable, herded together against what little shelter the stone walls offered. The stallion, that Mum had curiously named Ivalda, saw us and tried to walk towards us. The poor little chap stepped painfully onto his foreleg and it was very plain to see that he had become debilitatingly lame. We were thus obliged to brave the weather to investigate. When we reached them, we were shocked to find that of the 15 or so plucky creatures, half of them were lame. We inspected their hooves and found them to be grossly distorted and ulcerated. The vet later diagnosed them as having laminitis, a painful and nasty disease of the hoof that requires expensive treatment. They were all duly transported back to Halgill, where we apologetically brought them back to health, and then sold them to a dubious buyer at auction for a fraction of what they had cost us. I don't think that Mum ever noticed that they had even gone. Just about the only pastime on the farm that my brother did enjoy was fishing. When she became aware of this, it triggered yet another of Mum's crackpot schemes. One spring morning, we took delivery of 500 trout. These were duly tipped into the deep ponds of the stream that sauntered through our land opposite the farmhouse. I couldn't understand why they wouldn't simply swim downstream out of our boundaries and never be seen again. But the trout supplier met my impudent inquiry with a hollow assurance that this would not happen. The stream was a magical feature of the farm. It ambled through the fields on the south side of Howgill Lane within its own miniature valley. There were two or three points at which the water tumbled over falls of seven or eight feet high into pools deep enough for swimming. On warm summer days, if Lassie had got herself muddy, I would take her by surprise by picking her up in my arms and hurling her into the deepest pools. She would paddle straight to the bank and return right back to me, shake off her coat to ensure that she got me as wet as she could and then bark at me playfully out of reach. On the hottest days of summer, I too would swim in the pools 
my favourite spot could not be overlooked. I would strip off stark naked and leap from the fall into the bracing water. I discovered by trial and error that the pool was over six foot deep at one point and I would swim to the bottom for as long as I could stand the cold. I sat for many hours beside the deepest pool. I watched out for signs of the evasive 500 trout with a fisherman's patience. I fished for them using wriggling pink worms as bait. But I concede that fishing was an activity that my brother did better than me. When he appeared in the kitchen with his catch, Dad would gut it in the kitchen sink and Mum would fry it in butter, cover it in almonds, and Peter and I would eat in tentative triumph. I wasn't as successful as Peter with the fishing rod, but I became proficient at tickling trout. I learned that if you were very still, you could slowly remove the stones under which these timid creatures hid. As long as you make no sudden movements, the trout lies still. Then, ever so slowly and gently, you feel for the trout's soft underbelly. Amazingly, it does not flash away and you can gently stroke its tummy. The fish seems to go into a kind of trance, letting you observe its wonderful camouflage of speckled green-brown skin, blending with the colours of the rocks and bed of the stream. It must enjoy it in the way a dog loves to have its tummy tickled, surrendering completely to the pleasure. Then, when the trout is totally off guard, one scoops the unsuspecting creature out of the water with a sudden whip of the arm and it lands a flippity flapping on the bank. The ones I caught were usually very small, so having exercised my trickery upon them, I would put them straight back in the stream. The ability to catch trout with my bare hands heightened my sense of being some kind of spiritual shaman of the land, an intermediary between the natural and the supernatural world. Matthew and Duncan were fascinated by these powers, attempting the same trick themselves with occasional success. At that innocent age, I did truly believe that there were hidden secrets of the land to which I had been given special access. There was a heron that fished our stream. I was charmed by this grey bird. She was large, perhaps two feet tall. I would use my stealth to creep as close as I could to her. Once aware of me, she would take offence and fly off. She flew so low over my head that I could clearly hear her feathers shuffle through the air. In flight, or when landing, she was ungainly, yet standing on the edge of the stream, she was a picture of graceful patience. When fishing, she became a statue of concentration, capable of utter stillness. After a while, the trout became accustomed to the motionless shadow. Fooled into assuming the figure must be a tree or a branch, the cautious fish would resume their foraging. The precise point of the heron's beak at the end of her lightning-fast neck fired into the water and a trout was captured. The majestic bird then leapt slowly and vertically like the launching of a rocket. Away she flew to her large nest in the trees. I was mesmerised by the heron's size and skill. The way she folded her wings reminded me of a grey version of the capes that the masters at school would wear. I transferred the respect I automatically conferred to my schoolmasters to this pensive and serious bird.
I felt a bond. We could both outwit the nervous defences of the trout. Out walking by the stream, I would shush Matthew and Duncan whenever I saw her, and we would watch, spellbound, as she hunted. Occasionally, beside the stream, I would be conscious of the presence of other spirits. I imagined them to be magical elf-like beings of the rural countryside. They were harmless. I spoke to the invisible creatures aloud. I felt a calming happiness at being able to share the gifts of the landscape with them. On hot summer afternoons, I dreamed of the Greek mythology I was being taught at school. I remembered Ovid's tale of Cephalus, who, after his strenuous hunting, would call on the warm breeze named Aura, asking her to come and cool him with her gentle breath. I would do the same, and imagine the breeze responding to my coaxing. The tale ends in tragedy. Having been overheard talking to the imaginary Aura, Cephalus's faithful wife Procris is informed of his assumed infidelity. She is heartbroken and refuses to believe without seeing it with her own eyes. She secretly follows him while out hunting and hides in a nearby bush. Sure enough, she hears him call for Aura and moans with sadness. He hears her moan and, seeing a movement in the bush, believes he is being stalked by a wild animal. He hurls his spear into the bush and accidentally kills Procris. If anyone had overheard me, they would have concluded that I needed psychiatric help. I could lie on my back and look up at the clouds forming cotton wool shapes against the blue palette of the sky. I would doze to the noise of insects making their soporific buzzing summer sounds. The trees would softly rustle their leaves like a woman shuffling the skirts of a fussy ball gown. There was no need to move a muscle. Lassie would take herself off, sniffing around the stream for scents, and I would fall into a daydream. I could put myself into a sort of trance that monks strive to achieve, and hold it. I could walk beside the numinous beauty of the stream, and imagine all the spirits that surrounded us. To me, they were as real as the grey stone farmhouse we lived in. The animals in the fields would understand that I posed no threat. As I strolled among the sheep and cows, they, normally nervous of people, let me pass by without moving at all. Set against the impending threats of the real world, this extra dimension was pure but secret harmony to me. At school, I had a gifted English teacher called Mr Aldridge. He noticed my tendency to daydream. He encouraged me instead of castigating me. He would teach us Coleridge, not easily enjoyed by 12 and 13 year old boys. I recited the lines of the mystical Kubla Khan in my mind and imagined our stream to be the sacred river Alf. It's more like a spell than a poem. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So, twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girded round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. I would build that dome in air 
that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. The lines lulled me from paradise to a sense of enchanting menace, ancestral voices prophesying war, beware, beware. The warning mirrored a fear I felt in my own world. Like all paradises, mine too was under threat. Thank you.